So, good evening, Sangha. So, I am giving the Dharma talk tonight, and we are going to be working with mindfulness. What is mindfulness? There's a few quotes about mindfulness I really like. And um, one of them is from... I'm not sure if the sound is working. Oh, it's not? Well, no. It, it is. It is, but my voice isn't there. Maybe I have to move it. Is that better? A little better? What do you think? Maybe it's them. Can you hear it? Can you hear it through the speakers? You can? Oh, you can? Oh, well, see, that's better, right? There you go. Now, can I make it stay like that? This is an excellent example of what? <laughs> Both of those things. Dukkha and impermanence. Okay, that's probably, that's better, right? Yeah, I think I can hear myself through it. So we are going to be, I'm going to talk tonight about mindfulness. And um, here is one quote I like from the uh, Satipatthana Sutta. And um, so that, uh, there's essentially three suttas that we work with uh, um, that the Buddha taught uh, how to do meditation or how to meditate. Uh, two of them relate to a, you know, the mindfulness meditation that we're doing here, also known as Satipatthana or Vipassana meditation. And this is what the uh, sutta said in the beginning, I mean the, what the Buddha said in the beginning of the Satipatthana sutta. He said, This is the only way, O bhikkhus, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. That's a pretty excellent claim. So um, here is another quote that I like about mindfulness meditation by uh, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. He says, what we normally call the mind is the deluded mind, a turbulent vortex of thoughts ripped up by attachment, anger, and ignorance. This mind is always being carried away by one delusion after another. Thoughts of hatred or attachment suddenly arise without warning, and unless they are immediately overpowered with the proper antidote, they quickly take root and proliferate, reinforcing the habitual predominance of hatred or attachment in the mind and adding more and more karmic imprints. Has anybody recognized any of that today? Or am I the only one? (laughs) Yeah, so I think that... You know, that's an excellent example of what is going on with our mind. And one way, um, another teaching is that, you know, our minds and, you know, our heart minds, our thought patterns, you know, our, um, you know, neuroscientists call it those neuropathways that really determine what the strongest mental factors we as humans have, right? What are the strongest mental factors we have? Is it great hatred and delusion, or is it love and clarity and wisdom? You know, the strength of those factors really determine, particularly when we're responding to the world without a lot of mindfulness, really what shows up. So that's what we really want to do. I think of uh, the Eightfold Path, Sila Samadhi Panya, or uh, ethical conduct, mental training, and wisdom as, um, you know, how we are responding to life at any moment, you know, and it's a path that's 24-7. But this element of it, meditation and mental training, is a huge aspect of it and can be incredibly helpful to us. 
And actually, uh, Sabine were talking over dinner tonight, and I asked her, I said, do you think that there's anything that could arise in the body, mind, or heart that isn't within the four foundations of mindfulness? And we both said, no, we don't think so. So anything that we are experiencing, any one of us are experiencing in our meditation, you know, we have, uh, guess who also saw that in his meditation? We're an excellent company because that's what the Buddha saw saw in his own mind. That's what he saw in his mind. And, you know, that's what we will see in our mind. The question is, you know, what is the right way to hold these things that are arising all the time? So one way to think about um, what is arising is that what are the conditions that make these things arise, right? We know that one of the central tenets of uh, early Buddhism is conditionality, and that depending on certain conditions, certain things will arise in us. It's all cause and effect, right? He figured that out 2,600 years before modern psychology. Wow. He was kind of smart. But anyway, so um, there's this one teaching about the four floods, the four floods of what it means to just walk around in daily, in daily life. You know, I guess if you're not a monastic. Maybe if you're a, a monastic, there's some of that as well. But for us lay people, uh, I love the teaching on the four floods. And the four floods are, the first one is sensuality. And that's just what we're up against all the time. You know, our our entire culture tells us that if we want to be happy, we should look like this, we should own that, we should have this job, we should have this possession. It's, you know, thinking that some deep sense of happiness can be created from external conditions. And uh, that's the flood of sensuality, always wanting something. Uh, The second flood is the flood of becoming. I love this whole idea of becoming. I notice, you know, when I'm meditating, one of the most common things that arises for me is me telling myself who I am. I am such a badass, this or that. (laughs) Or I am just not good enough, and what the heck am I doing sitting up here talking? You know, and then everything in between that, right? And that's the flood of becoming, You know, sitting in front of you right now, I'm becoming a Dharma teacher. You know, if we were at Starbucks, we would be having a cup of coffee together. We would be something else, right? So causes and conditions have this becoming happening. And it's always excellent to see becoming. I love to see becoming. Us telling ourselves who we are. And then the third flood, and this becoming is happening all the time. It's flooding us. It's creating this is mine, this I am, and this is myself, you know. And our culture is excellent at feeding all of that becoming. And then the third flood is the flood of views, and that's thinking it's like this. Things are like this and things are like that. Thinking that we, that there is one perfect and correct way to do everything. So views, so... Um, um, I was lucky enough, I'm actually faculty at Sitting Bull Bull College on the Standing Rock Reservation. And um, I got to hang out with uh, Deborah and Ron, his horse's thunder. Ron, his horse's thunder is thought to be one of the leaders of the, the, um, you know, spirit rock (laughs) revolution. And he has this one saying that his wife keeps saying and he keeps saying, he says that, All generalizations are a lie. It must be a Lakota thing. (laughs) All generalizations are a lie. I love that. And I think that that is one way to think about views, about the views that we have. I mean, just a few weeks ago, I was um, having lunch with someone I admire incredibly, uh, Jane Middlebrook Moss, who runs an indigenous social work master's program at the University of Toronto. And, uh, you know, we were all trying to be so smart. All of us Native faculty were with her and tried to impress her, and we were talking settler colonialism this, settler colonialism that. Because, you know, that's what we talk about, how all of our identities got made as less than. And, you know, 
And it was so great. She turned to me, like, even forcefully, and she said, stop making people your enemy. And oh, my God, it just blew my mind. And I realized she was absolutely right. Stop making people my enemy. It was such a great lesson in that moment. And I think that's the view that, you know, we have all these ways to explain things, but the question is not whether they're always true. The question is how... How well do they help uh, reduce suffering and promote happiness? That's the condition in any moment. And that will change all the time. So that's the flood of views. And then the fourth flood, the, for, uh, the flood of ignorance, really fuels the other three. is not knowing where our well-being is coming from and not knowing where our happiness is and not knowing our profound interconnectedness. So, for all of those floods, uh, mindfulness meditation or vipassana meditation is uh, an integral part of that, an integral part of the uh, samadhi element of the Eightfold Path. And, um, you know, we can be mindful all the time. So, uh, along with that... um, so for the progress on the path of liberation to the end of suffering and to having our well-being be uh, coming from the inside of us, and that's the way that I'm really thinking about practice these days, is that if I have to depend on external conditions to be a certain way in order to be happy or to be at peace, I'm pretty much screwed. <laughs> I don't know if you... I know. I think we're all aware of what's going on for all of us right now, and of course we are going to fight, you know, to show the wisdom of our interconnectedness. And there is no such thing as people who don't belong to our community and our circle. Of course, we're going to do that, and we don't have to be be dependent on external things for us to have a sense of well-being. And that's also what. Um, you know, the Eightfold Path can offer us and what meditation can offer us very directly. So that's the, you know, I feel like I absolutely deserve to be happy. I don't deserve it any more than anybody else, but I absolutely don't deserve it any less than anyone else either. So I think that's something, you know, I think we all, I, I heard people speaking about being kind to ourselves and loving ourselves and... I think we all grapple with that. And that's another reason why our wonderful mindfulness Satipatthana Vipassana practice is neurodecolonization. We are seeing these, you know, these neuropathways of thinking about ourselves and our mindfulness can actually plug it up. <laughs> and if we do other, you know, Mindfulness meditation, Brahma Vihara practice, um, you know, other ways of uh, exp- just living the Eightfold Path, we fill up those neural pathways of all that negativity and all of that self disregard and ignorance of what where happiness is, and we fill it with um, we fill it with really positive mental factors and wisdom and compassion and love. And that becomes what we, you know, all of the mental factors that react to life as we walk in the world. So, I think we probably all know what the four foundations of mindfulness are. So it is, and we know this, mindfulness of the body The second foundation is mindfulness of feeling tone. And feeling tone is um, whether an experience is pleasant, whether what we are knowing in the moment is unpleasant, or whether what we are knowing in the moment is neither pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. That is um, mindfulness of feeling tone. The third is uh, mindfulness of mind, thoughts and emotions mental states, and then mindfulness of dhammas or mental phenomena. And right now, the two that I've been working with most are 
mindfulness of the five hindrances and mindfulness of the seven factors of awakening. And um, so I just want to talk about a little bit of those. And um, I have been working a lot with the way the Venerable Analayo is now teaching um, Satipatthana. Many of you probably know how he is teaching it these days. He has a new book out called uh, Satipatthana, A Practice Guide. And it's for absolutely sitting down and doing the meditation. And uh, this morning I did a guided meditation of essentially the way that he has put together mindfulness of the body. You know, the Buddha taught a few ways to have mindfulness of the body. And that was um, mindfulness of the 32 parts of the body, mindfulness of... um, Uh, the elements in the body, you know, the four elements and how they're absolutely, that's what the body is made of, the four elements. And then also mindfulness of just the um, impermanence of the body that, and I'm sure there's a few old people in here. There's a lot of young people. We love that, love the young people. But we love the crowns as well. (laughs) And... um, you know, the older I get, the more I can just feel, I mean, just on a daily basis, almost the degeneration of the body, the bones and the ligaments and the flesh and the skin. We can see it. It just happens. And that's a very wholesome observation to see that, to see that. So... um so the way the body meditation is going are uh, three particular ones. And the one I did this morning, which is a body scan of um, skin, flesh, and bones, is, you know, what it does is it builds up concentration in our minds. It allows us to be stable. You know, it builds up samadhi and being able to, it strengthens our mindfulness. It makes our mindfulness stronger. And it also, what it also does is it seeds the mind to have insight. It seeds the mind to have very particular insight about the real nature of the body. You know, we have all these crazy ideas, as Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche said, you know, deluded minds, our turbulent vortex of all of these sexuality and becomings and views. But when we do this practice of body scans, of skin flesh and bones, and we don't want to push anything. We don't have to conceptually think about it much. We just do the practice, and what that does is it, um, you know, I like to say that mindfulness is the data collection instrument for intuitive awareness, for this other knowledge system where wisdom and insight comes from, and it's wisdom and insight that frees us from suffering. It's not our conceptual thinking mind at all. So that's the first um, way to practice with mindfulness of the body is the body scan on skin, flesh, and bones. The second one is I'm going to lead the meditation again tomorrow morning. I'm going to do the instructions, and I'm going to do a guided meditation on the four elements, on how the body is earth, fire, water, and air. And I love it that... um, you know, the Buddha, when he was teaching his son Rahula how to meditate, that's how he ta- taught him how to meditate. He taught him four elements meditation. So I think that's got to be pretty special. And I know in a lot of our ceremonies and other ways that we practice, a lot of our cultural traditions, the four elements are central to that. I know in Indian country, someone mentioned the Sundance. And um, I sun dance for many years, and the four elements are so an, a keen part of that. And other Native ceremonies as well, the four elements are really central to that. So, and again, when we do body scans or do that meditation, it's building up samadhi, uh, it's building up uh, collectedness of mind. You know, we're not thinking a lot. Every time we think, you know, we're... Uh, releasing energy you know every time a thought it's like a blurp of energy goes and when we can really contain that we're building up energy and that's what 
strengthens our uh, samadhi, our concentration, and it makes mindfulness stronger as well. So, and then the third body scan is just knowing the impermanence of the body. We're not going to have time to do that. And so the second foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of feeling tone. And this one is huge. It's very, very big. Uh, And that is just knowing, and this is a universal characteristic, feeling tone is always present. It's present 100% of the time in our lives. But we often don't realize it or see that as part of what's happening in the moment. And that is um, mindfulness of pleasant sensations. You know, it could be when we're having dinner and just the taste of the food or... Um, you know, after having gone for a nice long walk and feeling the relaxation and tiredness of that, that might feel good. And actually, uh, there's a very interesting thing in this foundation of mindfulness too, is that there's such a thing as unworldly pleasure. Unworldly pleasure. And that's actually the pleasure that can come and the physical sensations of pleasure that can come through meditation and through other spiritual practices. And those are thought to be incredibly wholesome forms of having pleasure. You know, they, uh, we all know that some of the uh, very deep um, concentration uh, practices, you know, jhana practice and things like that are incredibly blissful, better than sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, just incredibly blissful um, feeling tone we can get that's coming from just this meditation practice. But even us doing, you know, a week of uh, intensive mindfulness practice and, uh, you know, creating the container of this ceremony, oftentimes we can have really pleasant sensations, be aware of very pleasant sensations in our body. Sometimes, um, you know, PT can be like little sprinkling energy, uh, energy, um, little bits of energy all over our body. I often feel a sense of calm, uh, clarity, and uh, contentment. I call it the opposite of craving. It's like just, you know, contentment in this moment that I feel around my heart chakra when I'm meditating, you know. And we can always make that the anchor of your practice. You know, it's very wholesome to make pleasant sensation in the body the anchor of your practice. And it's good because we're much more apt to stay with that, right? (laughs) Because it feels good. So we can always go there. But like everything else, it's impermanent, right? It arises and passes away. So that's pleasant feeling tone. Then there's unpleasant feeling tone. And, um, you know, I think we all, is there anybody else besides me who's had that on the retreat so far? (laughs) Another universal characteristic of being human, you know, the imperfection of everything, right? So that's unpleasant feeling tone. And um, often we call it pain. That's a very, very big word that doesn't really hold a lot of insight into actually what the sensation is. And that is uh, one advice to uh, advice of working with unpleasant feeling tone is rather than d- just to say, oh, that's pain and not look into it more deeply, is to actually, uh, you know, if there is interest in the mind, that's excellent, go and investigate it a little bit more. If there's not, you can ask investigation to arise may interest arise about this, you know, may interest arise, may investigation arise, and, you know, look more deeply into it. Is that unpleasant feeling tone, is it stabbing and uh, thumping or numbness or, you know, how would you even really characterize that rather than just naming it pain and not looking more deeply into it? So that's one of the good advices of <clears throat> dealing with unpleasant feeling tone is just to look more deeply. 
<clears throat> and a lot of times we can stay with the unpleasant feelings and see, you know, they're always changing. They also have the truth of the three characteristics in them. You know, of course, it's uh, imperfect for sure, uh, but it's also impermanent. Even, you know, the strongest or weakest unpleasant sensation is changing all the time. And that might be one way to investigate it is, how is this changing? And how is it arising? And what is making it go away? And what is making it arise? That's one way to um, work with uh, mindfulness of feeling tone. And then finally, for me personally, the most uh, difficult feeling tone is neutral feeling tone. Because neutral feeling tone is when uh, I start making up my own movies. You know, you start thinking about something else because boredom can arise with neutral feeling tone. Oftentimes boredom will arise and we'll just be looking for something more interesting to do, right? And oh my gosh, the papancha that arises. Papancha is like just crazy thinking. We all know on meditation uh, retreats, one, uh, one thing that can can be an outcome of neutral feeling tone is a Vipassana vendetta or a Vipassana romance. And wow, I'm so happy that, you know, and I'll just say this, this might be TMI, but I am so happy that I have gone through the change of life because (laughs) it frees us, some of us, up so much. I love it. But there's not so much Vipassana romance going on that used to happen, right? I remember uh, sitting the three-month retreat at IMS, and oh my gosh, I got married to like three people there, and <laughs> had kids, and got divorced. And it's amazing, the stories. And you know why we do that? Because thinking about those things is pleasant, right? It's pleasant, and we are drawn to wanting pleasant things. In fact, the Buddha's, you know, one of his deepest discourses about dependent origination, about just how it all happens, and he says that what there is is there's contact with something, contact with something, and then there, Vedana is the first thing that arises. So contact with something, and it's either pleasant. If it's pleasant, we run after it. If uh, contact and then unpleasant arises, we run away from it. If it's contact and neutral Vedana arises, we space out and don't even pay attention to what we just contacted. So um, so then there is tanha, so it's contact, vedana, feeling tone, and then um, upadana, which is clinging. When you believe that, if you believe the, uh, that whatever that thing that's pleasant is going to make me happy and it make me stop suffering, or if you believe that thing that's unpleasant, totally we don't need it, we're going to run away from it. If we believe that, uh, then we, um, we, we cling to that. That's upadana, we cling to it if we believe it and we don't see the truth of it with insight in the moment. And then with the upadana, that comes the bhava, the becoming. It turns us into somebody in that moment. It's so interesting. So, so you know, I just wanted to say that, to sh- say that feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral is a, uh, excellent thing to really be aware of, you know, in our meditation. So that's the second foundation of mindfulness, uh, mindfulness of feeling tone, Vedana in Pali. And then the third uh, foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the mind, of mental states, of the mind. And I guess emotions too, but emotions oftentimes are physical sensations, right? There's physical sensations that often give rise to thoughts, or thoughts can often give rise to physical, emotional, mental states as well. The two are very much tied together. So observing the mind, and that is just watching thoughts. You know, for a while in my practice, I made mindfulness of mind my anchor. And you know, when you're thinking a lot in meditation or on retreat. You could, you know, try to do that for a little while to make mindfulness of mind your anchor in what you're looking at just to see, 
you know, what is triggering thoughts to arise, what a thought arising feels like or looks like, what happens to it once you're aware of it, you know, does it continue, does it go on, does it get bigger, does it disappear, does it, you know, you know, what are the conditions for that thought to arise, what was the contact that gave rise to that thought, and then um, what happens to it once we have it. And one, another important thing to notice about mindfulness of our thinking process is um, whether, how wholesome or unwholesome what we think, what we're thinking is. That's a huge part of the practice because that's where we see where those neuropathways, you know, what the deepest neuropathways we have you know, it's telling us what habits we have, what mental factors are strongest in our heart and our mind. And, you know, it gives us an opportunity to really do something about that. So is uh, greed very prominent in the mind? Am I always thinking about what I want to make me happy? Is aversion very prominent in the mind? Um, you know, right now I'm... I. Uh, told my work that I was going to be retiring after the next academic year. And, oh my gosh, such a huge change. It's like all these people who I have loved for many years, it's like I'm creating all these reasons I don't like them, so I have to get out of there. It's crazy what the mind does to make it, you know, okay for me to do that or having not such a sense of loss somehow. It's crazy. And I see that. And it's like, Bonnie, I see you, Mara. I see you, aversion. And then I give myself a hug and say, but it's okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, how much greed, aversion, or delusion is in the mind? Do we believe everything we think? Oh, my gosh. It's crazy. And then just... You know, I think mindfulness of mind for me, it's not only um, the thoughts that are arising, but we also know that oftentimes, particularly when we're sitting in retreat, we'll see very similar thought patterns arise. So for me right now, what I just told you is an example of, um, you know, retirement, retirement thought patterns. So it's like, I see you retirement thoughts, okay. I love you, but, you know, you got to cut it out. And then, um, you know, that story I told you about the Vipassana romance or Vipassana vendetta, oh, my gosh, thoughts. I would create thoughts, like I said, of all of these fantasies. In fact, that was my uh, biggest um, thought pattern before, you know, I got a little bit older. It was, you know, romantic fantasy was so, so much where I always went to because it was pleasant. It was pleasant Vedana. I always went there uh, that I actually did a shorthand of it. It was called RF. So I would, you know, I would start fantasizing and say, oh, I see you, RF, you're there. And, you know, interesting, once you can see it clearly, you know, a lot of the times it'll just disappear, and, you know, it might be back next time I'm feeling, having neutral feeling tone and want a little bit of excitement or happiness. But, you know, we can see that and um, we're much more aware of that and can name that much more um, specifically and know it. And just knowing it and seeing it clearly with strong mindfulness, that's what deconditions that in us. That's the putty of mindfulness and that neuro, that deep neuro pathway that inclines our mind to go there when we want something, something pleasant to be happening. So desire and then aversion. You know, the people that we're mad at in our life right now and thoughts of them might be arising. Please, Bonnie, don't mention your ex-husband. No. <laughs> you know, the people that you don't even want to think about them because you'll go there and you don't want to do it. Well, all of the aversive, uh, aversive patterns. You guys are all in deep practice right now, and they say an excellent antidote to that, to the people who really you have some very deep anger at, is actually to... 
send them, you know, Brahma Vihara, send them some metta or some compassion practice. And um, so that's a good antidote to, um, to real aversive thinking and aversive thought patterns. I like to realize the common humanity of it. That, you know, you have done the exact same thing in other times of your life. So they're just like you and you're just like them. And, you know, you would hope that someone would have compassion on you and understand. And we give our, you know, we want to offer that same sense of understanding and goodwill to ourselves and to those people as well. And, you know, knowing that it's not there yet, but setting an intention to feel that in the future. And I hope in the future that I can have compassion and loving kindness towards this person and that person and this person to set an intention for that. And then delusion of, you know, just not understanding or knowing what's happening in the moment. Just making up, you know, thinking that we know what is happening and believing our minds. It's crazy. You know, in... uh, in the Buddhist psychology, there's only three things that are real. Uh, nama, Rupa, and Nibbana. It's physical qualities, the materiality of life, physical things, and then mental qualities, and consciousness knowing that, and then freedom from all of that. And that's what we're really going, you know, that's what we're trying to see clearly that all of the stories are concepts that are made by history and by, you know, how things are working and by, you know, in our environment. They're all concepts and concepts are not ultimate reality at all. And they can be changed, you know, with, with love and wisdom. And that's exactly why we're doing the practice to change them. So knowing what's arising in our mind, are we feeling like right now I'm feeling joy of just the Dhamma is so badass. (laughs) And that's wholesome. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to water the seeds of that. And so knowing what, if what is arising in your mind is wholesome or unwholesome and taking appropriate responses to that. So that's a few small ideas about dealing with mindfulness of mind. And then the fourth one is mindfulness of dhammas. And there's only two things in there right now that I'm really working with, and that is the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. And um, so I like to remind myself and all of us that the Buddha saw the five hindrances in his own mind. That's why they're in the four foundations of mindfulness. It's not like we have them and we're bad. We have them because we're human. It's a common humanity thing. We all have them. And the Buddha saw those in his mind. And that's why he wrote about them and said, hey, watch out for this because you're going to see that. And we know that there's um, two sets that are a bit opposite of each other. So anyone who has gotten sleepy or lethargic or felt like their clarity was just very low... Um, we call that sloth and torpor. We don't feel like we have very much energy to do anything, and there's not a lot of clarity. Uh, Sloth and torpor. And guess who saw that in his mind? Yep, you know the guy. (laughs) And then the opposite of that is uh, restlessness and worry and just not being able to stop thinking a lot. You know, restlessness and feeling like we can't settle down and just maybe sometimes I experience it as too much energy and that can happen when we're on retreat when we're meditating and doing this beautiful practice it really does increase the energy but we have to balance the energy right so we can get very restless and feel like we just can't settle down and worry and you know all of those mental habit patterns that we have about what about this, what about that, what am I going to do next, things like that. So just knowing that that is a habit pattern of the mind is incredibly helpful 
And we don't need to do anything about any of these, you know. Uh, what we need to do is just collect the data with our as strong mindfulness as possible. Just, yeah, that must be worry happening right now, restlessness. You know, I can't seem to settle down. There's a lot of thinking and papancha going on. And just let mindfulness take that data. And what that does is that fuels our wisdom principle. It fuels pana, panya. And panya and mindfulness will, you know, wisdom and insights will arise, which is what frees us from that. So restlessness and worry, sloth and torpor. And then the other two are um, greed in the mind. And, you know, all of these things have a hundred different manifestations of how many types of greed we can have in the mind. Sometimes for me on retreat, it's, uh, you know, I grew up pretty poor, working class, and our biggest um, pleasure was sugar, right? I don't know if anybody else likes sugar. <laughs> that was what you got when you were good, right? You got some sugar. So for me, on retreat, it's like when I'm desiring, the first thing is like, okay, I need to go have a cup of tea with half a cup of honey in it. <laughs> I'm sure no one here goes and does that, right? <laughs> right, yeah. That's a common humanity. It's not just us. I mean, the Buddha saw that in his mind. He saw desire in his own mind. So we're an excellent company. And it's nothing to... Um, and, you know, when I see these things in my mind, what I see is first I see the thing arising, I see the desire arising, and then the next thing that happens is I wince. It's like, oh, Bonnie, are you still doing that? But then the wince becomes the next thing I see. You know, the, uh, the non, you know, just the, um, you know, me dissing myself like that. Like, you know, you're just worthless. You know, maybe the... That's strong for the wince, but the wince is definitely a negative self-reflection, right? And that's just the next thing I see and say, oh, I see you, you know? And, you know, I've been calling that settler attitudes. Because <laughs> that's where they came from. A lot of them came from, but they're not our enemies. <laughs> so, and then aversion, so the greed, wanting something, wanting it to happen, and then the opposite of that, aversion, <clears throat> you know, not wanting, not wanting this, um, <clears throat> having aversion to the sloth and torpor, right? And actually the wince is probably aversion, right? The wince is aversion, and seeing that next thing, and just seeing how much aversion we have in the mind, like I don't want to... Uh, sit like this, I don't want to do that meditation, just watching as aversion arises and <clears throat> seeing it clearly as aversion, uh, a mental habit pattern that, you know, we each of us individually have because it's a common humanity thing. It is not personal. It's not personal. We didn't invent greed and aversion. It's been around a while. So seeing that as clearly as we can, seeing the wince, and then, you know, giving ourselves a little credit for seeing it and wanting to see it, and then coming back to our anchor. And then finally, doubt. Doubt is the fifth hindrance. And oh, there's that beautiful story of the moment before the Buddha became enlightened. He had doubt arise in his mind, right? He was sitting in meditation, and uh, Mara came, right? Mara, the, um, the uh, epitome of delusion, came to him and said, um, who do you think you are? You're sitting here and you think you should become enlightened? You know, you know what, why do you think that you deserve not to suffer? Who are you? And I love this story that actually... There's one rendition of it that is in Ajahn Suchito's Parami book. I would recommend it to anyone. It's a beautiful rendition of how the earth, in response to Mara chastising the Buddha, uh, Shakyamuni, who do you think you are? The earth, actually, the spirit of the earth rose up bigger than both of them and just was, you know, 
eminent over both of them, this energy of the earth, and said, Mara, you shut up. (laughs) The Buddha has spent multiple lifetimes back here doing his training and doing his work, and he absolutely deserves to be awakened. And Mara got all scared, and they ran away. (laughs) <laughs> and then the Buddha realized, you know, that was his wince, right? Has, was having Mara come and say that. That was his own habit pattern of mind that arose. And having the earth, he touched the earth, right? That's what he did. And when Mara said that, he touched the earth. And the earth rose up and bared witness to how long he has been doing this. And I'll tell you, all of us in this room, the fact that the, we're all here together, we have been doing this a while. We have also been doing this a while. So that's one thing that we can do when the self-doubt comes in. Touch the earth and ask the earth to share its, you know, its sense of um, that, you know, this is what is meant for us. And this is where we're going. And we absolutely deserve to be practicing like this. Let the earth tell Mara, that we are part of the earth and this is part of our development. So that is, that, those are the five hindrances. And those are part of the fourth foundation of um, mindfulness, the fourth satipatthana. And then uh, the last one that I want to talk about is really, really important because uh, oftentimes, you know, according to neuroscience, And I like neuroscience sometimes. According to neuroscience, we have something called the negativity bias, right? Uh, According to evolutionary psychology, we are always um, looking for what's wrong in our environment so the saber-toothed tiger doesn't hurt us. And all of these wonderful, positive mental states come, and, you know, we feel them for a second, and we just let them go. And... uh, That's where we want to have a teaching on the seven factors of awakening because uh, what we want to do with the seven factors and what the seven factors are, mindfulness is at the center of them and there's three arousing factors that, you know, bring up the energy and the three arousing factors are, um, so mindfulness is in the middle and then there is interest. You know, when you're interested in something and, uh, you know, you don't have to... You know, you don't have to force yourself to look more deeply into it, right? When you're uh, interested, energy automatically arises. And that's the second uh, or the third um, or the second of the the, uh, arousing seven factors of awakening. It's energy. So interest uh, arises and then energy arises and then, interesting enough, joy arises, You know, it can be very joyful, even when you're looking at something very painful. I know, I remember the first time Joseph pointed out to me that uh, I was dealing with some very difficult mental states, but I was holding them within a field of joy. It is so interesting how that happens. And, you know, when the seven factors are there, uh, you know, it's really important to know that there's a sense of joy or a sense of... um, Happiness in the mind, PT. Sometimes it's very physical and we can feel it like, um, you know, uh, very pleasant sensations in the body. And sometimes it's a mental feeling. And I love the mental feeling of just that, you know, there's no wanting anything, that there's contentment in this moment. There's joy in this moment. And actually, so those are the three arousing factors. And it's really important that when these are in our mind, that we recognize and acknowledge that they are in our mind. And what we want to do is we want to turn those states into traits, right? We want to not have them just as passing experiences, but really sink into them and feel them and know that they're there in order for make them to make them stronger and to make the neuropathways for them. So those are the three arising. And the same with the three calming. So mindfulness, again, interest, investigation, energy, joy, and those lead to calm and tranquility which also feels very good. And I'm sure that we have felt, even in this one full day, 
you know, that there have been moments where we have felt calm and tranquil in our body. And it's so important to know that that is what is present at this moment. So uh, calm and tranquility is the first of the calming factors. Calm and tranquility actually lead to concentration or samadhi. When we're calm, we're actually able to be more present with what is happening in the moment. Whether it is, whether we're looking at, uh, looking, you know, letting mindfulness pick what is arising and passing away in our heart-mind, or whether we are anchoring our attention in um, our anchor, you know. So that common tranquility strengthens concentration and concentration arises. And then with concentration, and it's so interesting how when your mind gets more concentrated, what happens then? This is how I can always tell whether it's really mindfulness in my mind. When I'm watching what's happening in my heart mind and I'm attached to it and it feels very sticky, that's perception. It's not necessarily mindfulness. But when I can watch it and, you know, I have a lot of objectivity about it, I can see it arise and pass away without a lot of uh, stickiness or thinking, oh, Bonnie, you're like this or you're like that, without really identifying strongly with it, that's really mindfulness. And what happens there is that that concentration leads to equanimity, equanimity of mind. And that's, you you know, the best part, right, when it doesn't matter. We're sitting there and our calming factors have balanced with our arousing factors through our mindfulness, and we can sit there feeling interested and joyful and energetic and calm and tranquil and concentrated, and what arises is, it doesn't matter what happens right now, everything is okay. I have the tools to hold whatever is arising in this moment. And that's when we know equanimity is there. And so I think a lot of times we tend, because of this negativity bias, to not know those things are there. But um, it's important to, when we see them, to really hold them and to, you know, the same way that we obsess over the strangest negative emotion we might have, to... um, you know, at least give our strong attention to, you know, those seven factors and just how wholesome and useful they are to us. So I want to read this little quote. I love this quote that I actually just found today. Where is it? Bonnie? <laughs> it's here somewhere. Oh, here it is. See, I even tore it out because it was so good. <laughs> Twenty years after the Buddha attained enlightenment, a senior monk by the name of Ananda became his personal attendant. I was surprised to hear that because Ananda is the Buddha's cousin. And I thought that Ananda had been around the whole time, but I guess... He didn't start hanging out, or according to this rendition anyway, to 20 years after the Buddha became enlightened. But So, uh, Venerable Sir, so one day Ananda asked the Buddha, Venerable Sir, if people ask me whether you are still practicing meditation, what should I tell them? And here he was, fully enlightened. The Buddha replied that yes, he is still meditating. What kind of meditation do you practice, Venerable Sir? Ananda asked. Mindfulness of breathing, the Buddha answered. Mindfulness of breathing. So that leads us to another uh, incredibly important sutta in uh, the canonical text of, you know, the canon of early Buddhism or Theravada, and that is the Anapanasati Sutta, which is about mindfulness of breathing. So um, I wanted to say that because... Oftentimes what I will do is I will go through the seven spokes of uh, the Satipatthana, you know, um, mindful uh, body scans of the four elements and of uh, skin, flesh, and bones, and just bring attention to how I can feel the impermanence of my body. I'll do uh, a mental body scan and check for what's going on in my heart and mind. 
uh, my mental, you know, the thinking that I have. I'll do a body scan for, or if I'm struggling, I'll do a hindrance check. You know, is there a hindrance present right now? And I'm always definitely happy to see the seven factors arise. Those are the seven spokes of the Satipatthana. But we can also do uh, much more concentrated breath meditation. And one thing that Seven A just told me that I thought was fascinating, and I'm going to go read up on this right away. She, uh, Seven A is in another, can I say that? Seven A is in another training program, actually, that Tanisara and Kitasaro are doing, that it is on my things to do list. <laughs> they're doing, it's a two year training that they're doing right now. And they're going to do another two-year uh, two one after this one is finished that I'm absolutely signing up for, trying to convince uh, Jeff to do the same. <laughs> and um, I guess Kirisaro is talking a lot about how important uh, Anapanasati is. And in the Anapanasati Sutta, it talks about knowing when the breath is long and when the breath is short, Right. And that, the newest interpretation is that, yes, you, you know, as we were doing this morning when I was leading the meditation of skin, flesh, and bones, of taking deep breaths and letting, you know, stress release, that that is part of the instruction of the Anapanasati Sutta, is to take some deep breaths towards relaxation and relaxing, relaxing the body and being aware of that and consciously doing that. And, you know, being aware of shorter breaths or just being aware that, you know, we think we know what's happening there, but every single breath is different. Every single breath is different. And to even see that much more clearly is something that we might use as our anchor as we just stay with the breath. So when you find yourself spacing out in your sitting meditation, um, or a walking meditation, if you, if you find yourself um, spacing out, you can come back to awareness of breathing. Awareness of breathing is a hugely wholesome thing. And we can come back and, you know, give ourselves some deeper breaths to let go of stress, but, you know, have some... Uh, have some um, power or intention in our breathing. Watch our breath uh, breathe slowly or slightly. You know, do that on purpose and stay with that and see how that feels. Because that also includes, uh, increases our concentration, our samadhi, and our steadiness of mind. So whenever you're not knowing what to do, go back to an anchor. It's always good to... I always do a hindrance check. Is there a hindrance here? And then to build a little bit more samadhi to go back to the anchor. And then after I do the body scans, what I do is I do predominance. I let mindfulness pick the object. So I'll sit in whole body awareness. Oftentimes, you know, the most predominant sensation will be the sensation of the breath at the abdomen. And I will have that as a loose anchor, but within a whole body awareness. And then what will happen is when something else arises, it'll catch my attention, right? And mindfulness will go to that. Uh, they call that predominance, whatever is most predominant in our awareness. And, we'll go, and mindfulness will go to that. And, you know, as uh, Sabine and I were talking about this morning, whatever arising is somewhere within the four foundations of mindfulness. And you can just say, which one is that? Which of the four foundations is that? Rather than to get wrapped up into the story or whatever it is, to just know it as one of the four foundations and be gentle and kind with yourself then. That was a lot of talking. <laughs> so let's sit for a minute. What kind of meditation do you practice, Venerable Sir? Ananda asked. Mindfulness of breathing. May our practice be for the benefit of all beings in all directions. 
including ourselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.